This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Late Boomers, our podcast guide to creating your third act with style, power, and impact. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. And I'm Mary Elkins. Join us as we bring you conversations with successful entrepreneurs, entertainers, and people with vision who are making a difference in the world. Everyone has a story, and we'll take you along for the ride on each interview, recounting the journey our guests have taken to get where they are, inspiring you to create your own path to success. Let's get started. Hello, I'm Kathy Worthington. Welcome to Late Boomers. Our special guest today is author Terry Brown, whose new book, An Enemy Like Me, that one of her reviews calls an emotionally resonant historical fiction novel that explores war and its impacts in unique ways that few military fiction novels do. And I'm Mary Elkins. We were privileged to talk to Terry when her novel, Sunflowers Beneath the Snow, about the tenacity of women in a Russian-occupied Ukraine, debuted last year. And we're excited to talk to her about An Enemy Like Me, her new book that is now on bookshelves everywhere. Welcome, Terry. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here again. We're so glad to have you. Yeah. You're one of our rare guests who gets to come on twice. Wow. So, so what did I do to, to get that? <laughs> you wrote another book. <laughs> yeah. Santa Claus has been on three oh, times. Oh, well. Three different Christmases. Okay. Yeah. He's so I have some work to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know you're working on your third I am. I but let's talk about this. Oh, yeah. What is the meaning of the title, An Enemy Like Me? And how did the title... And the book's great cover come about. And for the listeners, the cover depicts a soldier whose image is reflected in a pool of water. Right. So an enemy like me, so I'm terrible at titles. And it, it's always, <laughs> no, it's just a horrible, like sunflowers beneath the snow. I thought the book was eventually going to come out and it was going to be titleless. You pick it. I mean, it was just, it was <laughs> terrible. So an enemy like me, at least I finally came up with the title, but it's because it's about a first generation German American who ends up fighting in World War II. And he thinks he's going to fight the Japanese and ends up in the European theater and in Germany. And he fought in Germany and he recognizes that he's more like the enemy than he is different from the enemy. Um, and so that's where the enemy like me comes from. And then if you look carefully at that cover, you'll see that the reflection isn't just a reflection. He's an American soldier, but the reflection is a German soldier. Ah, so it's that idea that, you know, he's just one generation away from being on the other side of the war. And given that, yeah. that's kind of where this book is, is really focusing its attention is this idea of like, who, who is the enemy? How do we make an enemy? How do you make someone an enemy? And then the discussion I hope people have is, is do we need that in everyday life? I mean, I understand mm. why you have to have an enemy in war because one of you's coming home and you want to make sure it's you. And I get that. But but uh -huh. in in real life, you know, how necessary is this idea of, you know, separating us out? So. 
Well, let's talk uh-huh. about themes because yeah. you have that is one important theme in the book. Right. But right. you have other themes too. Can you address those? So you know, it talks about like war and how it changes people. Um, and the idea that this change is not something that's just during the actual time of the the conflict or even of the conflict and, you know, a few months after. This is the kind of thing that changes people forever. And it doesn't just change the soldier. Um, in this case, we see this war from his standpoint, but also from the standpoint of his wife and then his four-year-old son. And we see it from his son, as well as when his son is an adult and looking back and kind of reflecting that way. And we see that these changes are generational. You know, so what happened to this four-year-old child who didn't have his dad around for two years, that changed his relationship with his father. And then it changed his relationship with his own children and very likely changed their relationships with their children because of what they did or did not get from their own families. So, you yeah. know, this idea that, that, you know, we often look at war as this, this event, you know, from one year to a particular year, and then it's over. But for those people who fought in it, it continues on for generations. And then another yeah. one that I look at is xenophobia, the idea that, you know, um, we don't like a particular group because, and we've got a reason, and usually we have a very good reason, it's, and it's usually related to fear of some kind, you know, like that group did something and therefore we need to contain them somehow. And I look at that. um, A lot of people really remember the Japanese internment camps and things during World War II. But what people don't know is there were also German internment camps. So there were German Americans who also had the same fate. And there were a lot of things that changed in German communities. Um, I lived, I grew up in Ohio. And the town I was born in is North Canton, or I was actually born in Athens, Greece, but my family was all born in North Canton and grew up there. And, you know, I I lived there for years. And North Canton used to be called New Berlin. Mm. Okay. Nobody Mm. wanted to live in Berlin. So the, the town changed its name. And this was not unusual for towns to change names, for stores to change names, for people to change their names, to become less Germanic. And so yeah. it's it's that idea. We look at that as well. That is amazing because that's a lot of research and some of it very personal right. to you, obviously. Right. What do you think constitutes an enemy? And do you think it's necessary to have enemies in this world? So... You know, what constitutes an enemy? We can make an enemy of anyone who's different. It's that easy. If you Mm -hmm. focus on differences, you can have as many enemies as you would like. Um, In terms of do I, yeah, I mean, and that's, that's just the way it is. Do I feel that they're necessary? No, I don't. I don't. And I think that that all of the isms and phobias that that are out there in this world today, none of those are really necessary. And then, so what do you do about them? And I believe that it's it's one conversation at a time. So let's look at it from the standpoint of let's just say that you dislike blonde authors. Okay, so you dislike me <laughs> like just you. <laughs> yeah. So you just dislike me right away, right? Like you just that's it. You don't like blonde authors. But then you meet me and we have a really nice conversation and you decide, well, I do like Terry. Okay? Now you have a couple of choices. You can still say I don't like blonde authors. 
period. And then you've got some horrible cognitive dissonance because here I am blonde and you like me. Or you can say Terry's an exception to the rule. Or you can change your rule. Well, if you only meet one blonde author you like, you're going to say I'm an exception. But let's say you meet five or seven or Uh ten, right? You change your rule because you realize whatever that, why ever you had that, whatever made you say that in the first place. And I know blonde authors is like crazy and it isn't really a thing. But the truth is, is that we can make an enemy of anyone. So if there's some group that you're not, feeling comfortable with, the only way to get over that is to meet people from that group. <laughs> so my husband and I... And how do you think we're like our enemies? How do you think I we're think, like our enemies I think enemies we're are so much more alike. My husband and I rode all the way across the United States on a tandem bicycle, 3,102 miles. Mm. Okay. We met people from all walks of life. And I mean all. Different socioeconomic statuses, different races, religions, sexual orientations, political affiliations, you name it, we met it. And do you know what we found? We got along with everybody. We did. And yeah. and why is that? You're obviously very personable and very open to the world and I I bless you for that. I think I think the reason though is is that people were interested in in what we were doing and we found connections. And as soon as you find a connection, the things that separate you don't matter as much. That's right. That's right. You know, and that's that many people ride 3000 miles across the country on a bicycle. No, no. But, but the thing is on a tandem. Yeah. But the thing is, is probably the only one people, did you look into a Guinness Book of World Records? Oh heavens, no! There, there. The believe it or not, we met another couple while we were riding that had done it. This is not as it's unusual to the. <laughs> it's unusual to those people who've never done it. But there are a lot of, of cyclists out there who do this crazy thing. Oh, I wanted you to have the record. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Bummer. Bummer. All right. Well, Terry, your protagonist makes a choice to put his love of country and patriotism and duty above all else. So talk about the choices your book's characters make, because each of them do make choices. And if you would, address the theme of how the choices we make in our lives really um, directs our fates. Right. So, you know, I don't want to give too much away with the story, but but he doesn't uh, automatically go to war. You know, he makes a, a decision initially that war is probably not what he needs to do, that he needs to be with his family. But eventually something happens that makes him feel very compelled that no, in order to protect my family the most, going to war is what I need to do. And the decision wasn't an easy one for him, and it certainly wasn't an easy one for his family. And it does change. I mean, it changes every every decision you make. I shouldn't say everyone. I don't suppose that what I wore today really mattered. But any any major decision that a person makes, you had a, a choice of going one way or the other. And going one way would have led to one thing, whereas going this way leads to another. And it isn't even necessarily good or bad. It's just different. You know, every everything that we do, like I'm on this show with you today, I could have been doing something else instead. You know, what would that have led to? I don't know. I'm not doing it. But everything has its own own balance. And then when you take into account something as big as going to war, 
you know, then those, those effects really are lasting, you know, and you have to determine like, is it, is it the best for me and my country? And sometimes the answer is yes. And I suppose sometimes the answer is no. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's true. What do you think in your own life? spawned this novel oh i know what spawned the novel my so my family is yeah my family is german american um but we've been here since the 1700s but my grandfather fought in world war ii and in germany and he i was a teenager he spoke very little about the war um veterans during that period of time you just didn't really talk much about it and if he did talk it was after the war when he was still stationed in Germany and we would hear some stories about foods he ate or things along that line, but not very many actual war stories. But I was a teenager one time. I don't know what got him in a talkative mood, but he said to me, I always wondered if the person on the other side of my gun was a cousin. Oh, and that stuck oh, with that's me. powerful. Yeah. That's and powerful. that is kind of what, prompted this book was that idea of let's explore that a little more yeah it's such a strong feeling that brought you to write the novel to hear somebody in your own family say that yeah yeah and and it it still gives me goosebumps thinking about it because that was his experience and that was generations you know, our family had been in the United States for generations. We were far more American than we were German. I mean, we knew we had a German heritage, but that's all I knew. I mean, I, I couldn't have named a town. I couldn't have done anything. And yet for my grandfather, his thought while he was there was these people could be related to me. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. You know, so, yeah. I I had friends who fought in the Vietnam War, and they never spoke about it because it is such, like you say, a life-changing experience. And what they see over there is horrific for the most part, and they don't want to talk about it. They're trying to push it out of their their heads. But these days, at least we have treatment for PTSD. Exactly. Um, Then they didn't have any sort of treatment. Right. Um, can Can you elaborate? Also, besides how war changes people and families, talk about deployment, even if they don't go to war. How does that change families? Well, so wouldn't it be very similar? Because you have children who are missing out on a parent for an extended period of time. You know, so you have a, a child who's, you know, we'll put them at four years old, the same as, as the child in this book, and their father goes and, and deploys for a year and a half. It's essentially the same thing. In today's world, we're a little more blessed in that they might be able to Zoom with their parent who's gone. You know, they might be able to see them a little more um, as as opposed to in World War II, there were letters, but those weren't even regular. And, you know, you could go months without receiving anything from anyone. And, you know, you might get the occasional black and white photo of, you know, some blurry guy standing in the middle of something, but not really. You know, so today you get maybe a little more. But even then, you know, a Zoom meeting with your parent is not the same as having them be there and give you a kiss and hug goodnight and be there when you have a dream in the middle of the night that scares you and you get up and they're not there to hold you. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. Oh, 
Gee. And it sounds like you do explored that quite a bit in yeah. your book because you say you did a couple time periods. Yes. Yes. Two or three time periods. Right. Yeah. So is it two or three? So it, it's three? two. It's it's in um it's yeah. during the war. So shortly before the war and during the war. Although there are a couple of quick flashbacks to when both Bonnie and Jacob were children, but they're just a, a little chapter that helps you understand who they are now. And then yes, the husband you, and wife. Yeah, the husband and wife. And then you see the son, William, as an adult man looking back. So his father has already passed away and he's looking back at his father's life and his life and what he's trying to make of it all. Did you originally so want to uh, cover two time periods? Or yeah, did that I, come I, about? You know, I didn't do it on purpose. Like I didn't set about to do it. The The characters started talking to me and it's what needed to be done. So hmm. um, I was trying to tell the story from the point of view of the four-year-old. And from the point of view of a four-year-old, you can only say so many things because you're dealing with a four-year-old and their limited understanding and vocabulary. And yeah. so I couldn't, I couldn't make some of the points that I needed to make. And then it it really hit me. I can tell it from him looking back because now as an adult, he can verbalize more of the things that he was feeling. And so I'm able to kind of round that out and help us really understand what it was like to be a child at that time, especially mm. a child at that time when people were saying that he didn't understand when he did. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, did, did any right. of your, your family have that experience and relay it to you as the four-year-old? So what's interesting is my dad was four when his dad went to war. So uh -huh. I kind of picked that because I knew, but my dad also talks very, talked very little about it. But what he did say was, is he remembers his dad leaving on the train and his mom until the day she died swore there was no way he would have that memory. But he remembers very vividly. Oh, I think it's very likely okay. he had a concrete memory right. of that. It was so impressed on his brain. But I think that... And also, Go ahead. An, an enemy like me, your book, mm -hmm. also takes on xenophobia, as you were right. talking about earlier. And there's so much prejudice and fear disrupting the world today. So would you talk about that a little bit more for our audience? Yeah, I just, like I said, I, I think that we need to, first of all, as individuals, you know, we can make as many rules and as laws and whatever that we want to, and it isn't really going to change individuals. But as an individual, we need to determine whoever we're, it is that we're afraid of. You know, the phobia means fear, right? So whatever the fear is, is it necessary? And is it useful? And if it's not necessary or useful, and in most cases, I'm going to say that it's not, then you yeah. have to determine what are you personally going to do about it? You know, you can't wait for no government entity is going to make it go away. No law is going to make it go away. No foundation is going to make it go away. It's, it's on a personal level. It is, and not to say that any of those things can't maybe help and encourage, but it isn't, it isn't what's going to make it go away. This is a, this is a person to person thing, you know, and the more and people who are willing to look inside themselves the more likely we are to be able to start ridding ourselves of this kind of thing. Well, the experience mm -hmm. of xenophobia 
is passed down through exactly. generations as the experience of war. And that's that's a hard thing to get over. It really is. And, and you know, sometimes it does just take time. You know, if you yeah. look at from um, generation to generation, my I had a grandfather who was very racist and he right now would be 110. Okay. Ooh. And so you have to look at where was he, right? And racism was normal. It was considered normal. Okay. Then you go to my mom and you go to me and you go to my children and you go to my grandchildren. My grandchildren, I don't even, th now, of course, they're still very young, but they don't even understand what that means because it's uh -huh. been enough time. And so sometimes I think the xenophobia is a time thing, but it's mm. also being willing to, as an adult, you know, I grew up with an extremely racist grandfather, which meant that my mother had some racism. I have some that I have learned is just old behavior that I don't want. And so I make sure that I don't voice it. Like, you know, something will pop in. And therefore you've been able You're right. But that, that means you've been able to teach your children differently. Exactly. And then they've been so able to teach their children learn. differently. And so sometimes really it's, it's a matter yeah. of getting further and further away from something. Hmm. You know. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. Good yeah. point. No, that's, yeah, that, that makes so much sense. Um, both of your books on a bit of a different note, Sunflowers Beneath the Snow and your new one, An Enemy Like Me, they both have as a backdrop war and occupation. So what about that appeals to you as a novelist and just not as a spoiler, but is your third novel have that as a background as well? So I think what appeals to me is I love historical fiction, okay? And a good amount of historical fiction tends to revolve around war. It's just, you know, yeah. it seems to be what's out there. And and I think, yeah. you know, with with Sunflowers Beneath the Snow, that story came to me, you know, there was a little bit of truth and then I had to tell it and it just had to be in Ukraine and it just lent itself to that time period. And then this story, once again, it came to me because of something my grandfather said. My next story has no war. So, you know, yeah, oh. so it's in the 1890s and it's in the North Carolina mountains and it's about a healer woman who uses, Ooh. you know, herbs and, and Cherokee medicine and things along that line in order to help. And she butts up against kind of modern medicine and, you know, the idea of like, do we throw the baby out with the bathwater? And the truth is, is that mm. as a people, we often do something new and shiny comes in and we throw the old thing right out. And then later, what do we do? We go chasing after that thing that we threw out and we bring it back because there was some good to it. You know, so it's like, are we, are we as a society able to find the good in some old stuff while accepting new as it comes in? Um, you know, on a totally different note, not the not the medical at all. But I mean, I think about the fact that, you know, everybody went with, you know, CDs and now streaming music. But what's coming back? Vinyl. Everybody's going vinyl. back to vinyl, right? You yeah, know, right. And now they say they're going to bring back cassettes. I know, I know. So, you know, it's, it's funny how, 
you know, the first thing we did when, when, you know, cassette tapes came was we threw the vinyl out the window, right? And now all of a That's sudden, right. everybody and wants And our record back. players. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, and it's the same with medicine. It's the same with anything. You know, you look at medicine and for the longest time, people used, you know, dandelions and, and other things to help treat simple things that people uh-huh. were experiencing, right? But as yeah. soon as modern medicine came, we threw all that out the window. Look now what's happening. People are starting to go back to some of those basic roots. Why? Because there was really some good to it. It doesn't mean that what's modern is bad. It just means that what's older isn't bad either. You have to find the the balance between old and new. So. And speaking of balance, how do you juggle your writing, your book tours, your blogging, and doing podcasts with having a family life? How do you do that? <laughs> um, that was a funny face you made. You all need to go on our new YouTube yeah, channel. Exactly. Um, so, you know, it's funny. Mary had sent me a message about so how did I do it all? And it was like, I don't. I don't do it all. Like, you should see my house. Right now, you get to see, I made sure everything behind me is nice and clean. Don't look to the left or right, okay? Because it scare you. you know, okay, we won't. Yeah. And so, you know how do I do it all? I don't. I just pick what is the most important. And I focus on that. And other things are just going to have to go by the wayside. And that's okay, because I can't do everything. I'm not meant to do everything. So I don't, you know. Um, and we always like to ask what your writing process is. Oh, also, well, I have a crazy and writing discipline. process. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so I have a crazy writing process. Um, so some people are plotters and some are pantsters. And pantsters means you write by the seat of your pants. And I am a pantster. I have no idea. Like I am two thirds done with my third book and I don't know how it's going to end. I have no clue Um, because my characters haven't told me yet. I haven't got to the end, so I don't know. Um, And then I'm also what I call a binge pantster, which means I like to have a like two or three week period of time where I have nothing else to do. And during that time, I might forget to shower and comb my hair or even eat. And all I do is write and I'll get the first draft out in a week or two, usually two. And I just get it out. I kind of like, I call it word vomit. I just get it out and then I'll go back and and edit it after I've let it sit for a little while. So I let it sit and think about it. And then I come back to it and then I say, well, that wasn't very good. And I find what I need to do to fix it. So. (laughs) Oh, that's great. Oh, I'm jealous (laughs) as a writer. I'm very jealous about that. So what are the similarities between Sunflowers Beneath the Snow and An Enemy Like Me? And also your third book, whatever the title will be. Um, yes, yeah, so the title lists at, the, at this point. Um, they're all three generational stories. And that's something I really love doing is from the point of view of different generations. And the reason that I enjoy that so much is because it allows me to explore things from very different points of view. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I I talk about the idea of like, what does 9-11 mean to me versus what does 9-11 mean to my children versus what will 9-11 mean to my five-year-old grandson? And although it will still be important, it means something different because he didn't experience it. He wasn't alive. He has no, anything that he hears will be from 
you know, hearsay from other people. And so I love the idea that we can explore a concept from different ages because they've experienced different things in their lives. And therefore, how they see a particular event will be very different. So I would say that's the the main thing. And then the other thing is this idea of, you know, people kind of blossom wherever they're put, you know, that despite having really difficult circumstances, that people have this ability to find hope and joy. Um, because if they didn't, the world would pretty much stop. People would look and say, well, this is a crappy period of time and there would be no marriages and there would be no babies born and there would be none of those things because people would say, well, this is crazy. Why would we move forward? And yet people do move forward. And so I think both books kind of explore that idea that, that you know, even in the worst of circumstances, people find a way to find joy. Mm. That's beautiful. Yes. I think that's a really good thing to think of when you're composing your books. I love that. And what would you like our audience to have today as a takeaway? I think that the biggest thing that I've been trying to say about this book is, is you know, like, look inside of yourself and, and look at those people that are on your, we won't even call it a hate list, because most people don't hate. They're just afraid or uncomfortable. You know, so who's on your uncomfortable list? And then what can you do to change that? Because we are more like our enemies than we are different from them. You know, there's there are very few people who deserve to be on an enemy list. And most of those people are on that list because of an individual characteristic, not because of a group that they're in but because of the person that they are. And I, I don't have a problem with saying that there are individual people that you might not want to associate with, but typically it's not groups. It's not a group that you don't want to associate with. So. That's great, Terry. Thank you so very much. This has been moving and powerful. Our guest today on Late Boomers has been Terry Brown, author of the new novel, An Enemy Like Me, and the recent Sunflowers Beneath the Snow. Please visit her website, terrymbrown.com, and read her books. Both are terrific, and their characters will live on with you forever. Thank you again so much for your passion, your insight, and your inspiration. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. We did too. We want to remind our listeners to follow us on Instagram at Late Boomers and each of us at I am Kathy Worthington and at I am Mary Elkins. And please also subscribe to our new YouTube channel, Late Boomers, where you can see us live live on video now. Well, not live, but you know, <laughs> recorded on YouTube. You'll love it. We hope our podcast content is bringing you joy and inspiring you. And you can write to us on our website, lateboomers.biz, B-I-Z. And thanks for listening to us today. And please subscribe to Late Boomers on your favorite platform. Thanks again, Thank Terry. You. Thank you for joining us on Late Boomers podcast that is your guide to creating a third act with style, power, and impact. Please visit our website and get in touch with us at lateboomers.biz. If you would like to listen to or download other episodes of Late Boomers, go to ewnpodcastnetwork.com. 
This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast sites. We hope you make use of the wisdom you've gained here and that you enjoy a successful third act with your own style, power, and impact.